Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 015, Homer's Iliad, book three, part three. So I was going back through the podcast before, and I noticed that I got cut off in one instant while I was making two points. Um, and I would like to address those now. And just to recall where we are, we're in the middle of book three, talking about, uh, we just talked about the Tachoscopia last time, the view from the wall of Troy, where Helen introducing Priam and his greatest counselor Antenor to us, gave a description a description of the most distinct Achaeans. <clears throat> and in so doing, um, Priam first noted um, the most kingly of the men, Agamemnon, second, the most capable of the men, Odysseus, and third, the strongest of the men present, because of course Achilleus is not out fighting right now because he refuses to fight, Aias the Greater. And I said, and I believe I misspoke, I said that it must show the Achaean values um, that Priam values the king first, the most capable man second, and the strongest man third, suggesting an Achaean hierarchy of values. Though I would agree with that hierarchy of values, and Nestor certainly agrees with that, I meant to say that that clearly shows the Trojan hierarchy of values too. And though I made the point in the beginning lectures that a major difference between the Achaeans and the Trojans will be that they embody uh, different ideas, that, that involves a different level of analysis because they do both value king and capability and, <clears throat> and power in that order. However, the Trojans are a more superficial and less substantial people because they are less capable of embodying that middle element. And in fact, they don't embody the, the bottom element either, and Agamemnon will, will surely show, especially when he starts listening to Nestor, that he can embody the top element more. So the difference is not that they don't share the same values, but rather that they embody the values that they do, uh, that they do value to differing degrees, making the Trojans superficial where the Achaeans are deeply substantial. And to that point, what I got cut off saying was that the Achaeans outnumber the Trojans 10 to 1, which means there are a ton more Achaeans than there are Trojans, even with the Trojan allies. And you can get some clue into this if you read the catalog of ships. Tons and tons of ships come, over a thousand, meaning something like 50, 60,000 uh, Achaeans, up to 120,000, depending on if there are 50 or 60 per ship, or up to 120, I've seen estimates suggesting both, and certainly ships would have been of different sizes that time. And some about the ships, so they're, they're essentially giant canoes with sails uh, and oars on both sides. Not multiple decks, Not would not have been the most fun place to spend a lot of time on. Um, so there it is. So the Achaeans outnumber the Trojans 10 to 1. Why haven't they destroyed the Trojans, especially if they're so much fiercer and better organized and better disciplined in battle? Well, it's a simple reason. The Trojans have a wall made by two gods, Apollo and Poseidon. And the reason that those gods made that wall is that they made an agreement with Priam's father, Laomedon, who I often call Lamedon, but I think that's actually technically incorrect and probably the only name that will be explicitly incorrect like that on this podcast. But Laomedon made an agreement with them in the generation before that he would give them something or other if they worked for him. He then reneged on the agreement, however, which earned him the hate of the Poseidon, which he'll bring up in conversation with Apollo during the Theomachy later in, um, I think it's book 22. <clears throat> so why have the Achaeans not stormed and destroyed the Trojans and spent their last 10 years or so sacking 23 other cities? 
because the Trojan Wall is magnificent and made by gods, which means unimpeachable. What that also means is that the Trojans have not outright engaged with the Achaeans the entire time. So these, these battles could ostensibly not be in not be as exorbitant in number as you might imagine, because if the Achaeans have sacked 23 cities, as Achilles will say in the embassy to him in Book 9, um, in order to hoard and plunder, to get food to feed the troops and also keep them busy while the Trojans hide in their city, a substantial amount of the time could have been spent with those cities and not at Troy. And so the Achaeans may not know Troy and the Trojans quite so well as we might imagine upon just hearing that bland 10-year figure. Second thing I was saying is that Agamemnon, though we'll be very critical of him in the moments necessary to be critical of him, when he does perform, and he will perform in several different respects, he will make grand offers of appropriate magnitude as king. He will show great prowess as a fighter. He will show great concern for his brother, though... Some of the actions towards his family, as in particular his daughter Iphigenia, whom he sacrificed in order to gain favorable wins from Alice towards Troy, might suggest that he's, he's not so caring as we might suppose, seeing how he feels for his brother Menelaus. And in fact, in book four, the very next book, we'll see a moment where Menelaus is wounded, where Agamemnon shows real tenderness of spirit. Um, acting much as you would imagine any brother who loves his younger brother and um, sees him wounded, assumes him dead, and thinks it's his fault, which is exactly the stream of thought and the line of thought that Agamemnon will take. And so what he does here, so deftly, politically speaking, is that he does not accept Hector's word for the term of agreements uh, for the one-on-one -on -one battle between Menelaus and Paris. He insists that Priam come down and recognize him as king. So why is this, why is this brilliant? <clears throat> well, for two reasons. For one, Priam is currently king over not only his, na his nation, but also his allies, effectively making him an emperor and field marshal. Well, that's exactly what Agamemnon is doing, too. So this legitimizes his extending of reach by agreement with a foreign power, which you might imagine is part of the genesis of the modern nation-state in action due to the decisions of Agamemnon in this story, which is incredible. And it, what it also shows is that a potential superiority of Agamemnon that he can, for one, demand of Priam, for two, Priam show up, and for three, show open scorn to the word of Hector, his fellow war chief, against whom he fights on the battlefield. Um... <clears throat> Though not technically speaking during the Iliad, Agamemnon and Hector will come close to engaging in a one-on-one -on -one combat, but they, they never will. Uh, if you want to look for who has an eye for Hector, that would be Aias the Greater. He will <clears throat> spend a good portion of this text hunting down Hector. Diomedes will also get a crack at him too, as well as uh, another few good Trojans. We'll get into the battles very soon, and, well, we'll love it. So Priam and Agamemnon meet in the middle of the battlefield. Priam is accompanied by Antenor and Agamemnon by Odysseus. They agreed to terms. 
Whichever man wins gets Helen and the possession she stole. And then the other two armies, they can bolt. However, should the Achaeans win, they can get they will receive some additional recompense for their efforts, which makes perfect sense. And has modern correlates. For example, Germany is still paying off its World War II debts and just recently finished paying off its World War I debts. War is very expensive, as one might imagine. People are away from their jobs, their homes. And especially at this time where you're actually working the land often, uh, being away is, well... Just imagine what could happen at home, and you would have no word. And Well, we'll have some opportunity to fill out our imaginations on this uh, when we get to the Odyssey. And I'll also tell you some of the stories from between the Iliad and the Odyssey, from the so-called epic cycle, which we no longer have with us. But um, don't, don't fret, because Aristotle tells us that the Iliad and the Odyssey are the best anyway. And, well, his words in so many ways, have been borne out as, <laughs> as true, because that, those are the two texts that have survived, and those are the two texts that we'll be considering first here. So, Odysseus and Hector then inscribe the fighting space. Um, the terms are agreed to, of course. Everybody's stoked, and the men form around these, these boundaries. And again, to note... Odysseus is the one who inscribes boundaries, and so does Hector, which suggests that they both know restraint, because they know the proper measure of things. And so, as we mentioned last time about how Hector treats Helen, though he has every natural reason to hate her, unlike his brother Paris, who is completely consumed by nature, with no care at all for his culture and his people. Well, Hector here shows that through adequately drawing the lines. And Odysseus, well, we'll see feats of restraint from him uh, very soon in the Iliad, but especially in the Odyssey. He'll go on some several-day-long swims a couple times. He just loves that ocean water. And so Paris finally puts on his armor, if you were wondering, and the fight begins at... Book 3, line 340. And so, how a fight often will occur when it happens to be between two champions is there will be a throw. Um, usually have a spear. They often have one spear. Then, or, they will, they will either throw a rock at first or pick up a rock. Why a rock? Well, they're somewhere between a beach and a plane, and there happen to, it happens to be a rocky area. And, well... Why would you pick up a rock? Well, it doesn't cost anything. It's firm and hard, and it's a safe bet that if you throw it at somebody and hit them in the head, you'll do some serious damage, and it's much safer than engaging with your sword at first. And so we'll often see champions throw spears at each other. If those are ineffective, and they often will be effective, so, don't, so do pay attention to them. These, these guys know how to throw, especially in a heroic narrative like this where you would expect them to, to hit, sort of like if you're watching a James Bond, how the enemies always miss him and he hits them every time. It won't be quite that bad, and there will be some drama to it, but the heroes, they connect because they make things happen because that's what makes a hero. So, so the battles often involve a throw, 
followed by possibly a second throw. If that's not fatal, followed sometimes by a prayer. The prayer may precede the throw, too. Um, they'll engage with their swords, their short swords. And so they'll hold a shield and they'll have a sword. There will be small exceptions to this. There's a guy who's actually going to wound Achilleus named Asteropios, who's the son of a river. Asteropios, excuse me. And he's ambidextrous. And Aias the Greater doesn't actually wear armor, but he does have a giant shield, which scholars will say are anachronis is an anachronism from a time before the Mycenaean Age, which is cool. And interesting that Homer is subject to anachronism in that way. Possibly suggesting that Aias represents an idea that is anachronistic at that time. That he's somehow out of date, becoming irrelevant. Which is certainly suggested by the fact that Heracles has devolved to Achilleus, who is arguably inferior to Agamemnon with his great political strength, and to Odysseus with his great competency in all ways, and his self-restraint, which, you'll note, keeps him in the game where Achilleus is out, which might make one ask the question, is Odysseus more heroic than Achilleus, though Achilleus is so much more gifted, which one might then connect to the modern debate between who's more heroic, Superman or Batman. And, well, I think if one follows that reasoning, the case is made clear. So, the battle begins between Paris and Menelaus. Paris throws first. It hits Menelaus's shield. This will be a common thing. And what you look for when the shield is hit is, does the spear penetrate it? And if it does, does it penetrate the corslet of the individual fighting? The corslet is the chest plate. They have corslets, they have sandals, they have shields, they have swords, they have helmets, often with horse-crested hair. And so Paris' throw hits Menelaus' shield, no damage, a weak throw, pathetic, as we would expect. Menelaus... Then, showing his greater piety even than Paris, arrogant fool that he is, praise to Zeus! Smart move before a fight. Zeus, of course, stays neutral as the principle of order during the Trojan War. <coughs> but if one were to pray to any one of them, Zeus would be the one because, well, Zeus is also a god of justice, is a god of order, and, well, there, there must be quite a bit of justice behind Menelaus' throw. And so Menelaus' throw smashes through Paris' shield, through his corslet, through his shirt. And you might ask, does he die? And no, in the, La in the Richmond Lattimore translation that I use, it says that he bent away. Bent away? I have no clue what that means. I imagine Neo from the Matrix doing some sort of move, and I often demonstrate this for my students. Um, bending, you know, my back almost parallel to my knees. Um, so I have no clue how exactly Paris must have had to move to have a spear come all the way through his shield, sh corselet, and shirt and still manage to survive. But I will say that the exact same thing will happen to his brother Hector later on in the text. And so apparently it's a family trait, being able to bend to the side and avoid death. But it won't last for either of them unfortunately. 
Well, Parison finds himself on the ground, practically helpless. And Menelaus comes over to strike the killing blow and strikes Paris's helmet with his sword. And right when you think it's going to be over, his, short, his sword breaks into three or four pieces as it strikes the helmet. And Menelaus looks aghast to the gods, undoubtedly thinking to himself, Will this man ever die? And then he proceeds to grab Paris by the helmet in the most humiliating possible fashion and to drag him by his own chin strap towards the Achaean camp, choking him to death. This is an utter humiliation for Paris and completely what he deserves. And it is shocking to Menelaus, just as it must have been shocking to Menelaus to lose Helen and realize she was gone, especially to Paris, that this man won't die. And perhaps you, you could see this as a testament to Paris's lack of character, that he's so oily and grubby that even a clean blow won't kill him. And then, well, let's add some evidence to this. Aphrodite, goddess of love, shows up in a mist and whisks him away. And this is something that the gods will do in the Iliad. It will happen multiple times that a body, dead or alive, will be transported by the gods and then often by Apollo and his capacity as healer, Paeon, will heal them. And so some, some individuals will be healed by the gods. Some will be given special abilities like Diomedes, who will be given the ability to see the actions of the gods on the battlefield, which no other will be given. Um, and also the gods can turn the tide of battle, which will, which is sometimes represented by the presence of Ares, but will often in the Iliad be done by Zeus in agreement uh, with Thetis um, in honoring the agreement that he made with Thetis to honor Achilles by harming the Achaeans. It, it will require the intervention of Zeus to help the Trojans, which says something about how gifted the Achaeans really are. And they'd stay in it, too, which is incredible. And Aias the Greater will actually be shocked by the presence of Zeus one, at one point for under a minute and then return the, to the fighting, which I always thought is incredible. To see the presence of Zeus, which means defeat. You will lose if Zeus is on the other side. And Zeus is always quick to remind us of this. He, he says in book one that he has unconquerable hands. And later on when he threatens the gods, when he bans them from the battlefield, he'll mention that were they to play a tug of war with him on Olympus and them on the earth, all of them against him, we pull up them, the earth and the sky, with the easiest effort. So he's a lot stronger than all the gods. So if Zeus is against you, you lose. So that Aias, that he could recover from that sort of shock almost immediately and continue to fight bravely, what an incredible warrior. And he'll have to be an incredible warrior during the Iliad with Zeus against the Achaeans and Achilles out. It's a major time of disadvantage for them. And so Aphrodite whisks Paris away. Well, what does this mean? Well, potentially it means that he's a coward and he ran. 
But I think it's the sort of moment that's represented by a God intervening because it's a moment of pure character rather than simple action in the Iliad. Because of his superficial, romantic, and nature-bound love for Helen, Paris can't even stand as a man. It's as if not only does he lose his culture and giving up his duty as prince to his people, and, and of course all his familial roles to all his brothers and his sisters and his parents, and you know, in particular to Hector and to his new nephew, Astyanax. But he's so opprobrious that, well, we already know that he refuses to live well. He won't even die well. And he won't even die at that. He's, he's the opposite of what any man really wants to be. And so, his wife, Helen, is very quick to remind him of that when Aphrodite shows up. In disguise, but Helen, quick-eyed, sharp-eyed, notices the goddess of love. And the goddess of love says, Oh, go! I've just saved your husband for you, which is as superficial an understanding of the situation as one could imagine, especially given the fact that a man is not simply a man, but the character which he embodies. And insofar as Paris was any man, he's now branded as coward, absolutely. And so would Helen even be still attracted to Paris is a legitimate question, because the man that first came to abscond with her was, of course, a prince from Troy, and uh, dangerous, and unknown, and foreign, and could have been anything. She knew nothing about him, really, except for some very positive things. Now she knows he's a coward hated by all, and has ruined her reputation as well, because she's gone from being a beloved, beautiful queen wanted by everybody, to being a beautiful and yet hated and castigated and whispered about Queen married to a man she has zero respect for. And, well, she shows this lack of respect for him when Aphrodite says, go attend to your man. Helen responds very sharply. Strange divinity. I'm now in the Lattimore translation. Why are you still so stubborn to beguile me? Will you carry me further yet somewhere among cities fairly settled, in Phrygia or in lovely Myonia? Is there some mortal man there also who is dear to you? Is it because Menelaus is beaten, great Alexandros? That's another name for Paris. It's very ironic because Alexane in Greek means to defend and Andros means man. So defender of man, if you, want, you understand that abstractly as defender of manhood, well, Paris hardly has feet to fill those shoes, so it's a deeply ironic name for him. Luckily, Alexander the Great improved upon that name, and we'll see what we can do as well. So, back to what we were reading. Is it because Menelaus has beaten great Alexandros and wishes, hateful even as I am, to carry me homeward? Is it for this that you stand in your treachery now beside me? Go yourself and sit beside him. Abandon the God's way. Turn your feet back never again to the path of Olympus. 
but stay with him forever and suffer for him and look after him until he makes you his wedded wife or makes you his slave girl. Not I. I am not going to him. It would be too shameful. I will not serve his bed since the Trojan women hereafter would laugh at me all and my heart even now is confused with sorrows. Bang! So those lines, mm, three ninety nine. They're much clearer in Lattimore to four twelve. And so, wow, that's quite a way to talk to to Aphrodite, and it shows quite some intelligence. Um, also, a lack of anything really to lose, or so Helen thinks Aphrodite will remind her of otherwise very quickly. So the first thing she says is she's like, is there somewhere else you need me to go? Essentially suggesting that Aphrodite has made a what of her? A, a, a call girl, a, a prostitute, a whore. And <clears throat> Helen Helen has known herself as the most beautiful woman ever to have existed and uh, as a married woman and as a mother and has known uh, as a queen, has known the highest statuses known to women at that time and uh, ever, really, because what is higher than a queen? Um, perhaps a free democratic citizen. Interesting to argue that. Um, but now, to just be carted around, um, driven by forces beyond her control, she's saying it's too much for her. And, well, then she actually viscerally attacks. Well, not viscerally, but acerbically attacks Aphrodite saying, why don't you go serve him? And this is not the way you talk to a god, especially an Olympian-class god. And what do I mean by Olympian-class god? The 12 Olympians, uh, whom can be extended to 14 or so, depending on what you do with uh, some of the rarer ones about which we have fewer stories, like Hestia, who's the consistent flame within us all, and the household, uh, representative like Constancy on the moon of Dante's Paradiso. Um, She's, she's not always on there. Um, who else is not on there? Sometimes Dionysus is not on there. Um, there's uh, Demeter and Persephone. Rarely Persephone's up there. Um, but a few of the gods don't make it on there all the time. So, But basically what it means to be Olympian-class god is that you are top. Uh, you are one of the top-tier gods. You represent a primal force um, of culture and or nature or the cultured aspect of something natural because the generation before the Olympian gods were called the Titans and they were also, um, uh, they ruled the universe, but they, they rule more aspects of the natural universe. So, um, you have Helios, the sun, Hyperion, the sky, um, Rhea is more a force of, uh, earth, um, like Demeter, a proto-Demeter, but uh, an intermediary between Demeter and Gaia. And so it is the beginning of the anthropomorphization of nature, which is then continued by the Olympians and the anthropomorphization of social custom uh, in conjunction with nature. So things like marriage, that's of course acted out and natural to, uh, to us as creatures, but we only come to recognize it as custom and consider it far after we do it, which is very interesting. And so the Olympians will represent more humanistic aspects or the humanized versions of natural things. So like what is Hermes? He's the god of communication or transportation or the movement of one thing from one place to another. So essentially he's the god of the transfer of information. Um, also the god of change of states. Anything trans, transportation, transformation, um, 
even transubstantiation, if you really think about it. Um, so he, uh, he is a liminal god. He takes gods between one place and another, and in particular, he will in Book 24, both of the Iliad and the Odyssey, be the gatekeeper to the underworld. And so he takes those who are living to where they are dead, and, and as what is called a psychopomp, a mover of souls, a sender of souls, uh, suke and pimpain from the Greek. And, and he's also known to be able to, with his wand, he carries a wand, um, the caduceus, he can make a, um, a sleeping person awake and a person awake asleep. And in fact, that's what he did to Argos, a giant with infinite eyes, though on finite space, um, who was enlisted by Hera to watch over Io in the form of a cow, and who Hermes was then sent by Zeus <clears throat> to slay, and he used his, his wand, his caduceus, to put Argus to sleep, because Argus never fell asleep with all his eyes, because he represented alertness. And so Hermes slit his throat, killed him, threw his, and then took his eyes, and as sort of a consolation, threw them into the peacock's tail, and the peacock, uh, the peacock became the animal of Hera, um, and is actually what draws her chariot in Ovid's Metamorphoses. Um, and so, alertness becomes a symbol of alertness, and Hera, as woman married to serial cheater, is certainly on the alert all the time, and so. Back to Helen, talking to Aphrodite, she says, why don't you go sleep with him? Which is not how you talk to an Olympian glass god, which started that whole derivation. Aphrodite's not going to take this. And so she says, 414 to 418, wretched girl, do not tease me lest in anger I forsake you and grow to hate you as much as I now terribly love you. Lest I encompass you in hard hate caught between both sides, Danaeans and Trojans alike, and you wretchedly perish. Recall that Danaeans is one of the three names for the Achaeans. They're the Achaeans, the Argives, and the and excuse me, the Achaeans, the Argives, and the Danaeans are all names for the Greek troops, uh, the so-called Greek troops by Lombardo, but of course there was no Greece at this time, and of course the people that would become Greeks called themselves Hellenes because they thought that where they lived was called Hellas, or rather they called it Hellas. They didn't have to think it because they did it. So they probably did both. And so Aphrodite very sternly reminds Helen that she still has plenty to lose. Those looks and, well... Everybody could hate her completely and want to tear her apart if, say, Aphrodite's gifts didn't remain with her. Because that's something that Helen undoubtedly has to think about, which is as her beauty wears off as she ages, will people focus less on what's superficial in her <clears throat> and more on the decisions she's made? on her character. And though I did mention that she is highly intelligent and a skilled weaver, which indicates intelligence in these texts, because that's one of the things that women of the household did, and of course the most intelligent women, or at least the most creative, will produce the best art. 
well, Helen, and we'll know Penelope, and we'll know of about a divine woman, um, semi-divine, really, uh, Arate, who are all gifted weavers. Weavers, like weavers of stories. Um, weaving patterns on patterns, like stories do, with words. That's, that's the physical aggregate. And so gifted as Helen has been, perhaps her infidelities will start to catch up with her as she ages, and Aphrodite is quick to remind her that, well, she may be the only friend that Helen's got. And so Helen returns to see her cowardly husband in all his glory. Let's see how they interact. Line 428. This is Helen. So you came back from fighting. <clears throat> oh, how I wish you had died there, beaten down by the stronger man who was once my husband. There was a time before now you boasted that you were better than warlike Menelaus in spear and hand and your own strength. Go forth now and challenge warlike Menelaus once again to fight you in combat. But no, I advise you rather to let it be and fight no longer with fair-haired Menelaus, strength against strength in single combat, recklessly. You might very well go down before his spear. And Paris will respond to her in his characteristic fashion. But notice that she just... Whatever respect Helen may once have had for Paris has disappeared because it has been shown for the illusion that it once was. Apparently Paris is a sweet talker as well as a sweet looker, and he has little to back up his words, because apparently something he said, a claim he made that Helen in her youthful foolishness or folly must have believed is that he is stronger and more powerful than Menelaus, and, well, uh, he's neither stronger nor better in fighting, nor does he command a stronger force, uh, nor does he have more force of character either. So he is wanting in all respects compared to Menelaus. And this is how he responds. Lady, censure my heart no more in bitter reprovals. This time Menelaus with Athena's help has beaten me. Another time I shall beat him. We have gods on our side also. Come then. Rather, let us go to bed and turn to love-making. Never before as now has passion enmeshed my senses. Not when I took you for the first time from Lacedaemon, the lovely, and caught you up and carried you away in a seafaring vessels. In seafaring vessels, excuse me. And lay with you in the bed of love on the island of Cranae. Not even then, as now, did I love you, and sweet desire seized me. Speaking, he led the way to the bed. And so to some extent, this passage should disgust you, because on the one hand, he doesn't take blame at all for losing. He clearly lost. He lost man against man. There was not a single god on the battlefield. We know, because we have insight into these things as readers. And so what was his excuse? That Athena was against him? No bloody way. And, well, then what is his suggestion? That he's so amped up from his new the, to his near-death experience that he has to turn to this carnal pleasure with Helen? And in fact, you might understand that this is representative of him being overcome by the natural force of nature against his culture again, because what are they not doing when he sees her? 
Well, they're not talking, that's for sure. They're not having a conversation. They're not uh, considering the ethics of this war. They're not sharing information with each other. They're simply sharing the bed for lovemaking. Um, it's a purely crass or physical expression of the physiological excitement that he experienced in the moment. And it has almost nothing to do with Helen as a person. <clears throat> and so it's a representation of a terrible, terrible marriage. And so this entire book, book three, has been an introduction to Paris, as well as to other Trojans of more substance. And where it started with an act <clears throat> of utter superficiality from him and his act of false gallantry with leopard skin and no armor stepping out in front of his men as if he were brave, immediately followed by his cowardly retreat as if he had seen a serpent and turned pale, completely observed by his brother Hector opposite to him. Well, it ends also with a superficial act of lovemaking with his wife, whom he no longer shares love or feeling, and who doesn't even respect him. And so ends book three. <clears throat> we finally got through in three parts. Wonderful. So next time we are going to dive into book four. I don't lecture on all of book four, but I will lecture on Pandaros and Athena and what happens after this fight between Menelaus and Paris ends, because you might imagine that after Paris disappears from the one-on-one -on -one combat, people do not know what to do. It's chaos unknown situation and well basically what will happen is that Athena will have to come down and trick a foolish Trojan into breaking the truce and then well chaos will be replaced by the order of war which is a funny way of seeing it but also the correct way of seeing it because an amnesty without proper conclusion or a moment of amnesty without proper conclusion previously allowed for is pure chaos, though its most peaceful version, which is very interesting. Um, and so the men will be standing around not knowing what to do at first until somebody fires the first shot, as it were, and fires it at the wrong person and stirs up the rage of the Achaeans, and the fight will begin again. And so, please, uh, download the Anchor app. Subscribe to my show, The Alexander Schmidt Podcast. Share it with your friends. Share it on Facebook. Share it on Twitter. Um, if you think it's interesting, I'm going to keep adding to this. We're an eighth of the way through the Iliad right now, and we're going strong. And I'm going to keep busting out content for you all. And I appreciate um, all your messages, all your call-ins, all your likes, all your shares. Um, this is a labor of love for me. So I really appreciate um, when you share in it with me. And I appreciate being able to share it with you. All right. Thank you. Have a wonderful day.